The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? Once we've got a different business model, then they have to figure out, well, what does Alexis want? Oh, Alexis wants to meet up with her friends. Let's give her that button. What does Alexis want? She wants to be able to pay attention. Okay, let's warn her every time she gets a link that if you click on it, it'll take 12, you think it'll take a few seconds, it'll actually take 12 minutes before you get back to where you were before, right? Once the incentives change, it can be changed from a model designed to hack and invade your attention to a model designed to heal your intention. These changes are possible, absolutely possible and achievable, but we have to make these companies do it. We have to choose to value our attention and focus, and we have to fight to take it back from the people who are invading it. That was a quick clip from this week's episode with Johan Hari. You guys know what a big fan I am of this man and his work. You'll have to excuse my raspy voice. I think I'm losing it. And I'm not sure why. Hopefully I'm not getting COVID. But I love Johan so much. He's been on the podcast before. It is one of my top performing episodes. If you haven't listened to that one, go back and listen to it. We cover his book, Lost Connections. And that book honestly changed my life. It changed the way that I view mental health in America and across the Western world. When he sent me an advanced reader copy of his newest book, Stolen Focus, oh my God, I had the same reaction as when I read Lost Connections. Everything made sense. As someone who was diagnosed with ADD when I was in middle school, I often questioned how much of this is me and how much of it is my environment. I think I've touched on this, that, you know, How can you expect a a kid who's experiencing so much trauma at home to focus in school, right? Like if our brains are meant to protect ourselves, then how can you focus on a math assignment in school when you don't know if your dad's going to be drunk when he picks you up or if your parents are going to be fighting when you get home? But Johan's new book dives into way more (laughs) than that. You know, we think that our inability to focus is is a personal failure to exert enough willpower to like stay off of our phones and to focus on the tasks of the day. And the truth is way more disturbing. It's that our focus is literally being stolen from us and we have to take it back. In his newest book, he lays out the 12 deep causes of this crisis from the decline of mind wandering to rising pollution, all of which have robbed us of our attention. I feel like everyone was talking about ADD and ADHD and how to cope with it on TikTok in 2021. And so I have no doubt that so many people need this book. The statistics are kind of freaky, you guys. In the United States, teenagers can only focus on one task for 65 seconds at a time. And the average office workers only make it three minutes. And it takes 23 minutes to regain our full attention back on task after we get distracted. Like so many of us, Johan was finding that constantly switching from device to device to tab to tab was diminishing and depressing way to live. And he tried all sorts of self-help solutions, even leaving his phone behind for three months and nothing seemed to work. So he really, he went on a journey around the world to write this book. And I know that so many of you are going to benefit from hearing this interview. As always, the man is just a freaking genius and he knows his shit. So with that, let's dive into this week's episode with Johan Hari. The book is really amazing, Johan. I mean, of course it is. I'm probably your biggest fan. 
I, it's so nice to see your face again. Hopefully I'll see you the next time you're in Los Angeles. It's funny because when you visited with me last time, you were writing this book and you said, oh, I just left Las Vegas. And I thought for sure you were writing a book on gambling. And I was like, oh, he's writing a book on gambling. This will be amazing. But alas, (laughs) you weren't. You were writing this incredible book, Stolen Focus. And I ate this thing up, ate it up. (laughs) It is, you know what it is? The way that you write really it puts the pieces together for me. It was maybe three years ago, I was in a, my, my therapist's office and I said, you know, I think I might need to get back on ADD meds. I have the worst ability to focus. And I said, it's been going on since I was a little girl. And she said, well, tell me more about that. When did this start? And I said, well, I was diagnosed with ADD when I was eight years old. And she goes, well, what was going on in your life at eight years old? Mind you, prior to this, I'd never thought of of ADD outside of there's something wrong with my brain. I didn't think about the societal impacts. And I said, well, you know, my dad's alcoholism was really bad and my parents were divorced and my mom was a mess. And And she goes, right. So How do you expect a child who is chronically stressed out to focus at school when they don't know if their dad is going to pick them up drunk or if they're going to be beaten when they get home or, and I I was just, I was like, yes, that makes sense to me. And then reading your book, I was like, oh, all of the pieces are just coming together so beautifully. (laughs) So take us, take me back. Tell me, I mean, I'm assuming that you were sick and tired of having a hard time focusing. And so you decided this is the next book I'm going to write. Yeah. You know, that's so interesting. Everything you just said, I'm thinking about it because for a long time I had this worry. I felt like with each year that passed doing things that required a deep form of focus, things that I loved, like reading a book were more and more like running up a down escalator it was getting harder and harder. And I could see there were figures suggesting this was happening to more and more people. You know, the average college student now focuses on any one task for 65 seconds. The average office worker now focuses on any one task for three minutes. But I I was kind of putting off looking into it. And then there was this thing that happened to me where I realized I had to. So I've got a godson called Adam who, when he was nine, he became completely obsessed with Elvis. I, I, I never knew why, but he started, you know, like, <laughs> it was funny because he didn't know this had become like a cheesy cliche. So he would sing like Viva Las Vegas or Suspicious Minds. And he did it with this sort of heart catching sincerity. And it would get me to tell him again and again, the story of Elvis's life. And one night when I was, I mean, I tried to skip the end where, you know, Elvis shits himself to death on the toilet. And One night I was tucking him in and he said to me, he looked at me very intensely and he said, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he said, do you promise? Do you really promise? And I said, yeah, I promise. In the way that you tell promises to nine-year-olds knowing they're going to forget it the next week. And I I didn't think about it again until 10 years later when so many things had gone wrong. So Adam was 19 by then. When when he was 15, he'd, he'd dropped out of school and he just seemed to spend all his time staring at screens kind of in this sort of blur of WhatsApp and YouTube and porn. And and he couldn't really stay with any topic for very long. It was like his mind was whirring at the speed of Snapchat and nothing still or serious could gain any, any traction with him. And one of the reasons I found this horrifying is that in the decade in which Adam had become a man, that fracturing was happening to so many people. And he was the extreme end of the spectrum, to be sure. But I could feel that happening to me. And I'm you know, probably at the extreme other end of being able to focus most, you know, or, or had been. I, I could feel that happening to me. I could feel it happening to so many people. And, and, and I was, <laughs> I remember one day we were sitting on my sofa here in London and I, and I was watching him and, and just looking endlessly flickering between these screens and doing it myself. And I said to him, I suddenly remembered this thing that happened when he was nine. And I said, let's go to Graceland. And he was like, what are you talking about? He couldn't even remember that I, this Elvis obsession. 
Now it's like, let's go to Graceland. We're going to go all over the South. We need to break this numbing routine. I said, but there's one condition. I'll take you, we'll go. But when we go, you can't be looking at your phone all the time. You've got to leave it in the hotel during the day. You've got to, you, you know, and he, and he promised. So two weeks later, we, we set off. We went to New Orleans first. And when we arrived at the gates of Graceland, there's this thing now where this is pre-COVID. You, there's no longer a tour guide to show you around. What happens is there's um, they give you an iPad and you put in earbuds and the, the iPad shows you around. So it says, you know, go left, go right. It narrates the history of wherever you are. And in every room you go in, there's a representation of that room on the screen, on the iPad. So we're walking around and I notice what this means is everyone just walks around Graceland staring at an iPad. And the only time they would take their eyes away from the iPad would be to take out their cell phones and take a selfie or take a picture. So I'm walking around, I'm getting more and more tense. And we got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favorite room in Graceland. It's like a kind of fake jungle with loads of sagging green fake plants. And there's this couple next to us, a Canadian couple. And the man turned to the wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I kind of looked at him and, and laughed. And then I realized he's, he's being serious and his wife is swiping left and right. Going, yeah, wow. And I, and I said to him, but sir, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do. You could just turn your head because we are actually in the jungle room. You don't, you don't have to look at a digital representation of it. We literally look, we're in the jungle room, right? And kind of understandably, they sort of backed away as if I was a kind of maniac. And I turned to my godson to sort of laugh about it. And he was standing in a corner looking at Snapchat because from the moment we landed, he had just been completely incapable of keeping this promise. He was just, when I said to him in the plane, oh, you said you weren't going to do that. He said, oh, I thought you meant I wasn't going to take phone calls. I can't not look at Snapchat and text. And he said it with a kind of baffled honesty as if I had expected him to hold his breath for like three weeks or something. And, and I started, I really lost it with him. I said, you know, you, you're frightened of missing out, but this is guaranteeing that you will miss out. You're not present at your own life. You're not seeing the things that are right in front of you. Look at all these people there. They're not seeing the things that are in front of them. They're not able to focus and think about, about the, the things that matter. And my, my godson sort of stomped off past Elvis's grave. And I kind of wandered around Graceland on my own for a few hours. And that night I found him at the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying. And he was sitting by the swimming pool, which is shaped like a giant guitar. And they're constantly playing Elvis songs in the background. And he was just, he was just staring at his phone. And he said, I know something's really wrong, but I don't know what it is. And he carried on texting. And that's when I thought, I can't put this off anymore. I need to investigate this subject. So I ended up going all over the world, interviewing 200 of the leading experts on, more than 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus and just learning a, a huge amount about this subject. What would you do if you didn't have high interest loans or credit card debt? With Upstart, you can pay off your existing debt quickly and easily and start living your life. If you're carrying a credit card balance month after month, it can feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of debt with no end in sight. Upstart can help you make that final payment so you can get ahead. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. Rather than looking at credit score alone, Upstart considers other factors like your income, your current employment, and your credit history to find you a smarter rate for your loan. You can check your rate without impacting your credit score in minutes for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can even receive funds as fast as one business day after they accept your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash reality. That's upstart.com slash reality. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. That's upstart.com slash reality. 
Where are my OG recovering from reality listeners at? If you've been a longtime listener of this podcast, then you know what a big fan of Osea Malibu I am. I love their line. The white algae mask, the red clay mask, their Vegas nerve oil. I'm obsessed. You've gotten through the hectic holiday season and you've made it through 2021, finally. And you're probably burnt out and feeling like you need a fresh start to focus on yourself again. You may have let your self-care practices slide during the busy past few months. I know that I have. A great self-care practice is giving myself a nightly massage with the Osea Malibu body oil. I am a religious nighttime shower girl. I love to come into my bed clean. And what I love about Osea's body oil is that it moisturizes your skin and it leaves it looking healthy and glowing and it doesn't leave you oily. Like it actually absorbs really nice and just leaves my skin feeling super refreshed, which I love. Not only that, but their ingredients are super clean and their products are sustainable. Osea has been making products that are clean, vegan, and safe for your skin and the planet for over 25 years. When it comes to clean beauty, Osea is the pioneer. They have award-winning serums, moisturizers, and body treatments. Their body oil has been a favorite of celebrities for years. They also just launched their first body butter, and it's truly so nice and luxurious. It has the same intoxicating scent as the body oil, and it's butter is rich in texture and transforms dry winter skin, leaving it soft, smooth, and healthy looking. New year, new you. Start fresh with clean vegan skincare and body care from our friends over at Osea. You can get 10% off your entire first order with promo code reality at oseamalibu.com and you'll get free samples with every order and orders over $50 get free shipping. Now's the time to make small changes that can have a big impact on your day-to-day. Head to oseamalibu.com to find your new routine and use code reality at checkout for 10% off. I used to care so much about portraying a perfect life and acting like everything was okay when really things were far from it. I was secretly battling anxiety, depression, and an eating disorder. So it was a lot. I am Victoria Garrick, former division one athlete, mental health advocate, and host of RealPod. Every Wednesday, I sit down with celebrities, athletes, entrepreneurs, and more to talk about the inner thoughts and feelings that we're all struggling with. So leave the filters and facetunes at the door and join me on RealPod. It's really interesting because, yeah, technology is is a piece of this. And mm-hmm. we're going to get into the other causes in a second. But it's interesting because, like, I say this frequently. It's, it's that the way that we're just living these days is not sustainable and not conducive to overall health and well-being. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that we've kind of had this renaissance period when it comes to technology. But yet it's made our lives vastly more complicated, more stressful. And I think that it's, it really speaks volumes to kind of like the human condition or like living, living in the world in the way that we do, that this technology that could free us up and create more space and make our lives easier is something that now makes it more challenging. I catch myself doing it, answering the email at 11 o'clock at night on my phone. You know, being available 24-7 is mentally exhausting. And I want to step into that piece of it because in the beginning of the book, you sit down with, I can't recall the woman's name, Basically, you sit down with one of the experts who really lays out the fact that our brains are not meant to handle more than one to two tasks at a time. And so if you think about that, and then my next thought was, so in a day, how many tasks is it realistic that my brain can handle? And I am doing so much more than that. No wonder I am chronically stressed out and exhausted and not able to focus. 
No, you're so right. You're so right, Alexis. So the what I learned from interviewing all these experts from Moscow to Miami to Montreal to Melbourne was that there's scientific evidence for 12 different factors that boost or degrade attention. And for most of them, there's good evidence that we've actually, they're kind of going off a cliff, which is why we're having this, this crisis. And so you mentioned one of them. And it's interesting to think about tech, because I was surprised in what I learned that actually we, we've been thinking about tech too simplistically. A lot of the invasion of our attention isn't actually inherent to the technology. It's because of the current business model the technology runs on. I know that can sound a bit odd, so I'm sure we'll we'll unpack that later. But the thing that surprised me even more is tech isn't the biggest cause, actually. There are even bigger causes in the way we're living that are degrading our attention and focus. And once you understand all these causes, we can begin to build sustainable solutions individually and collectively. But you mentioned one of the ones that um, has had a most profound effect on me, actually, learning this and then building solutions. So um, the guy who told me about this, I went to interview one of the, well, one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, a man named Professor Earl Miller who's at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And and Professor Miller explained to me exactly what you said. He said, you need to understand one thing more than anything else about the human brain, which is you could only consciously think about one thing at a time. This is just an inherent limitation of the brain. It hasn't changed in 40,000 years, the human brain, and it ain't going to change anytime soon, right? But what's happened is we've fallen for an enormous delusion. The average teenager now believes they can do six or seven, follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. But what Professor Miller showed, when you get people into labs and you get them to do more, think they're doing more than one thing at a time, they study them. And what they discovered is actually when you think you're doing more than one thing at a time, what you're really doing is juggling. You're alternating from one thing to another. So let's say while you were speaking just now, I've got my phone somewhere in this room. I can't see it, but somewhere in this room. Let's say when you were talking, I had just glanced at my text messages and glanced back at you. It feels like a tiny thing, right? Two seconds. I'd go, but what happens is, glance at the text message. I said, oh, my friend Rob texted me. His mum's got out of hospital. I get that. And then I glance back at you. I have to refocus on you. Wait, what was Alexis just saying? What, what am I trying to communicate? What's the conversation we're having? Now imagine that I glimpse another thing on my Facebook. So this incurs a cost. It's called the switch cost effect. And when you do it, it feels, you don't even notice it comes with a cost. And it feels very small. In fact, the effect of switch costing is enormous. So I'll give you an example of a study that showed this, a relatively small study. Hewlett-Packard, the printer company, who always make printers that jam up in my experience, but whatever, and they did an experiment. They got a group of their workers and they split them into two groups. And the first group was told, just do whatever task you've got to do, and we're not going to interrupt you. And the second group was told, do your work, and you're going to receive texts and emails. And at the end of this, they tested the IQ of both groups. The group that was not distracted scored 10 points higher on the IQ tests than the group that was distracted. To give you a sense of how big that is, if you or I smoked a spliff now and got stoned, our IQ would fall by five points, our IQ and attention, right? So being distracted has double the negative effect on your attention of getting stoned. You'd be better off sitting at your desk doing one thing at a time and smoking a fat spliff than you would sitting at your desk doing lots of things and not having a spliff, right? There's other studies that have shown it switch costs reduce your mental power by about 20%. Now we are all losing that 20% of our mental power all the time, right? Because we're always in this mode of distraction. We think that a small interruption like a text is tiny. Professor Michael Posner at the University of Oregon showed that if you are interrupted, it takes you 23 minutes to get back to the same level of focus that you had before that interruption. Now, most of us never get 23 minutes clear. So we're we're living, the way Professor Miller put it to me, is we're living in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation, right? Now, there are solutions to that. And I think the important thing to understand about all the causes we're going to talk about is there's two layers of solution to this, right? The first layer is a personal layer, right? There are things we can do as isolated individuals to reduce these problems. So I'll give you an example. Where is it? So uh, so it's a prop. I haven't used a prop before. So I don't know if you can see this. I'll hold it up to the camera. I know some people are just listening. This is, you can see that, can't you? 
So this thing I'm holding is a K safe for the people who can't see. It's a plastic safe with a removable lid. And you can take the lid off and you turn the dial at the top and you say how long you want to shut your phone away for. It can be anything from five minutes to a week. And then you put your phone in it, you put the lid on, you push the button at the top and it locks and you can't get your phone out. I mean, if there was a fire or something, I could smash it fairly easily, but then I have to buy another case safe, right? So I use that for four hours a day. So that's an example of a personal change. There's loads of personal changes we can make. And obviously I talk about them a lot in my book, Stolen Focus. But we've also got to be honest with people. That will only get you so far. And at the moment, a lot of people will hear me saying, I I spend four hours a day doing that. And it will feel to them as though I've walked up to a homeless person in the street and I've said, hey, buddy, you know what would make you feel much better? If you went into that restaurant over there and you had a really nice meal, you'd feel much better. Why don't you do it? Right? And the homeless person entirely understandably will say, fuck you. I know it'd make me feel better. I can't do that. So at the moment, many of us live in a gap between what we want to do and what we feel we can do. So there are social changes that we can fight for that make it possible to free people up to do that. So I'll just very quickly give you one example. In France, in uh, 2018, they were having a big problem with le burnout, which I don't think you need me to translate. And they found, they discovered that 35% of French people felt they could never turn off their phone or not check their email because their boss might message them at any time of the day or night. And if they didn't get back to them, they'd be in trouble, right? And this was just fucking people up. You couldn't spend time with your child without being worried about it. You couldn't read a book without being worried. You couldn't have a bath without you. You were just constantly had to have a certain amount of your bandwidth on monitoring this. So the French government, under pressure from labor unions, introduced a law, very simple law. It's called the right to disconnect. And it just says two things. You have a right to legally defined work hours, and you have a right outside those work hours to not have to check your email or answer any phone calls. So now I went to Paris to speak to people about this. Big companies get huge fines if they try to get their their workers to answer email outside work hours. So you can see how that's a collective change we can all fight for that makes it possible for us to individually free up our attention. And there's lots of things like that. You've got to have these two levels, the personal change and the bigger changes that make it possible for us to make even more personal changes. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely. And I feel like that's a perfect segue into the social media piece. (laughs) (laughs) it really is right because it's like yes I 100% agree and like you're the homeless man scenario you're like yeah this makes (laughs) sense but the way that technology has us hooked this feeling of the fact that we are like chronically missing out and the way that we are targeted through these companies it literally, it, it has absolutely hijacked my brain. There's no doubt about it. I will 100% admit. And, you know, there was that documentary that came out and I watched it and I was like, that's awful. Fuck Facebook. I'm getting off. And I'm still on. It's been like eight months later, you know? It's like, <laughs> it's so hard. No, you're so right. And this is why it's so important for people to understand. Your attention didn't collapse. It has been stolen, Right. Because when, when I felt my attention fraying, I would go into this negative self, self-talk. self I would say, oh, you're weak, you're lazy, why aren't you good enough? It's really important to understand this is happening to almost everyone. And it's happening because we are being hacked and invaded. Now, there's all sorts of ways in which the current social media model does this to us. It makes us crave rewards. We, you know, if you, if you, it makes you crave the likes, the hearts. The if you're suddenly without them. Exactly. Ah. Um, it makes you switch tasks much more. You know, uh, the, I had a really, I interviewed a lot of the people who designed the world in which we now live in Silicon Valley. And there were lots of moments that were fascinating, but one moment that really haunted me, I interviewed Tristan Harris, who's a wonderful former Google engineer, who's now been really blowing the whistle on these different companies. And Tristan worked on the Gmail team when they were first developing Gmail and they wanted to get more and more people to use it. And they wanted specifically to get people to use it more often throughout the day because they make more money that way. And one day he was with his colleagues in the Googleplex. And one of them just said, oh, I've got an idea. Why don't we make it 
so that whenever you receive an email, your iPhone vibrates a little bit. And everyone said, that's a good idea, let's do it. And a week later, Tristan was walking around San Francisco and he's just hearing this vibrating everywhere. And he realizes, fuck, we did that. And that's happening all over the world. In fact, about a year later, he, he did the figures. That decision caused 11 billion interruptions to people's day every day. It's now vastly more, right? So you can see how, to me, there's an encouraging aspect of this, which is it's important to understand we can have social media without it being designed to invade our attention. So the way I understood this, it took me a long time to understand this. And there was a moment that really helped me. So Tristan said to me, when you open Facebook, it'll tell you all sorts of things, right? It'll tell you it's people's birthdays. It'll tell you someone tagged you in a photo. It'll tell you what you said on the same day five years before. There's one thing it doesn't tell you that loads of people would like to know. There's no button that says something like, I'm free. I'd like to meet up with people or any of my friends nearby and also want to meet up, right? Now, anyone hearing that will immediately think, oh, that'd be a really useful thing, right? I'd like to know that. That would be really popular. You can see how it would be really popular with Facebook users. So ask yourself, why does Facebook not provide us with that button? If you follow the trail from that, you understand a lot about how it's invading our attention and why and what we can do about it. So when you open Facebook, they make money in two ways. One is really obvious. You scroll down and you see ads. We all know how that works. The second way is much more important and valuable to Facebook. Everything you do on Facebook is scanned and sorted by Facebook for a specific reason. So let's say that you say on Facebook that you like, I don't know, Bette Midler, Donald Trump, and you say to your mother in a message that you just bought some diapers, right? So Facebook knows, okay, this is a man, in my case, it'd be a man who likes Bette Midler. He's probably gay. No disrespect to the straight men who like Bette Midler, but there ain't many of you. Um, Probably gay. Okay, he's right wing. He's conservative. I'm, I'm not, but it would, if I like Donald Trump, it would think that. And he must have a small child because he's talking about diapers, right? So immediately it's getting a picture of me. Now imagine they've got tens of thousands of data points like that. The reason they're building up this profile of you so they can sell it to advertisers, so they can the advertisers can target you very specifically. Advertisers don't want to send ads for diapers to me. I don't have a baby. They want to send ads about diapers to you. You've got a baby, right? So they're constantly building up this profile. And that is the most valuable thing they have. It's why they dominate so much of the advertising market, right? Now, imagine they introduce that button. I want to meet up with my friends. Who's available? You push the button. You go, oh, Kathy's up the road and she, she, she wants to meet up. We'll go and have a coffee. You would put your phone down. You would close the Facebook app. And you and Kathy would sit opposite each other and have a nice coffee, right? That's a catastrophe for Facebook. Every time you close the Facebook app, every time you look away, every time you regain your attention, they are losing money. Every minute more that you scroll, they make more money. So all of their machinery, all of their advertising, all of their engineers, all of their algorithms are designed to do one specific thing to keep you scrolling. This isn't some conspiracy theory. This is what they say. Sean Parker, the first one of the, the first major investor in Facebook, huge figure in its history, said, we deliberately designed it to take as much of your attention as possible. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what's what it's doing to our children's minds, right? That's what they say. Now, the most important things to understand the most important thing when it comes to tech is this technology doesn't have to work that way, right? There are other ways it can work. So think about an example from the recent past. Older listeners will remember in the 1970s, it was very normal. In fact, it was the, the, the norm that people would paint their houses with lead paint and they would fill their cars with leaded gasoline, right? And then it was discovered, we'd actually known since the 1920s, but the industry denied it. It was became really obvious that lead was really damaging people's ability to focus and pay attention, right? Exposure to lead really fucks up your brain. It inflames it and has a terrible effect. So what happened? We banned the lead in petrol and paint. Now you're sitting in an office 
that was painted. I'm sitting in an office that was painted. We still paint things. I can see cars from my window. They still got gasoline in them. They just don't have leaded gasoline. In the same way, we can have we can have social media. We should have social media. Social media is a good thing, but it can run on a different model. At the moment, it's designed to hack your attention. But Ainsa Raskin, who is a key figure in the history of the internet for all sorts of reasons uh, that I can talk about, but he said to me, he's been at the heart of this machinery. He said, first thing we've got to do is just ban the current business model. It is inhuman to have a business model that is based on tracking you to figure out how to invade your attention and then selling that to the highest bidder. Just ban it. It's like lead in paint. It fucks us up. Don't let them do it. After we do that, we can move to other business models. It might be subscription like Netflix. We pay a small amount every month to have a Facebook account. It might be that we own it together publicly in the same way we own like the sewage pipes. There's a whole range of ways we can uh, work it differently. But once we do that, the incentives for the social media companies completely change. Suddenly, the whole that their model is no longer about hacking you and selling your attention to someone else. Once we've got a different business model, then they have to figure out, well, what does Alexis want? Oh, Alexis wants to meet up with her friends. Let's give her that button. What does Alexis want? She wants to be able to pay attention. Okay, let's warn her every time she gets a link that if you click on it, it'll take 12, you think it'll take a few seconds. It'll actually take 12 minutes before you get back to where you were before, right? Once the incentives change, it can be changed from a model designed to hack and invade your attention to a model designed to heal your intention. These changes are possible, absolutely possible and achievable, but we have to make these companies do it. We have to choose to value our attention and focus, and we have to fight to take it back from the people who are invading it. As you're saying this, I happen to be on Brian's computer today and his emails pop up in the corner every three seconds. And I'm sitting here going, oh my God, Brian, I don't know how you focus at all on this computer with the amount of emails that you get. And I mean, to be fair to Brian, he has focused heavily on weight loss and he has ha- lost a ton of weight. <laughs> yeah. So we give him Brian is looking love and credit amazing. for that. Amazing. <laughs> we are very proud of <laughs> Brian for taking health initiatives. So speaking of Facebook and our children, I was in my mom's Facebook group for the area that I live in, which might be, I mean, sometimes it's very toxic in there, but most of the time it is about community building and helping each other out and, hey, heads up, this happened and this is going on in the schools and everyone should be aware that X, Y, or Z, you know, my packages are stolen on my porch. Does anyone know what happened? Usually it's helpful. I've noticed in the last three years that I've had a child in elementary school that I've been seeing more and more posts. And maybe it's just because I've been focusing more on this type of topic, or maybe it's because Facebook is now showing me more of these posts of moms who are saying that their kids cannot focus in school and that they have been diagnosed with ADD and that they're starting them on medication. Why the rise in ADD diagnosis is across the board, but especially in kids. What are your thoughts? So this is something I researched a lot, as you know, in the last third of the book is is really about this. Mm -hmm. And of all the things I learned about, this is the one that's most disturbing. So there has been an explosion in children presenting with attention problems. For every one child who was diagnosed with attention problems when I was six years old, there's now a hundred children diagnosed that way. Staggering explosion. Now, lots of things have happened. And the way that is usually presented to us is, oh, there's always some children who had a genetic problem and it's now we identify it and recognize it. So it's not that it's increased. It's just that now we're identifying the kids who would have gone unidentified in the past. Now, there are some genetic contributions to attention problems for some people. That is certainly true. And it's wrong that some people deny it. But I think when you look at the evidence, you can see that that's not the primary thing that's going on here that actually there is a real increase in these problems. And and it comes from a profound transformation in children and childhood that has taken place. So at the same time as there's been this explosion in children presenting with attention problems, there has been a deep change in how childhood works. So one of the ways I tell this in the book is through a story of an incredible woman I got to know. So in the 1960s, a little girl called Lenore Skenazi 
lived in a suburb of Chicago. And when she was five years old, every morning she would walk out of her house and she would walk on her own the 15 minutes to her school. She would generally bump into the other kids and they would kind of wander down together. When she got to the school, there was a busy road and there was a 10-year-old boy whose job was to dress as a kind of lollipop man and help the five-year-olds across the street. She would walk into school. She'd be there, you know, all day. And then at 3 p.m., she would leave on her own, wander around the neighborhood with her friends or on her own for two or three hours. And then she'd go home when she was hungry, right? That was how all children lived in the United States and across the Western world in the 1960s, right? Ask anyone who was alive then, that was their childhood. Today, if you saw a five-year-old walking on their own down the street, you would probably call the police, right? By the time Lenore got to have her own children in the 90s, she was living in Queens in New York, childhood happened entirely behind closed doors. You walked your child to school or drove them. You waited until they'd gone through the door and you were there to collect them like a package at the end of the day. It reached the point where by 2003, only 10% of American children ever play outdoors without an adult. And the average amount of time they play outdoors, I think, is 15 minutes, right? So effectively, what was entirely the norm for all children throughout history, with a handful of exceptions, has vanished, right, in the space of a generation. And Lenore had this really interesting experience where her son, Izzy, she's got two sons, one of her sons, Izzy, she took him on holiday. They went on holiday to a resort in Mexico when he was nine. And there, the kids would just wander around freely. They would meet on the beach in the morning. They would invent their own games. They'd run around. And suddenly, for the first time in his life, he was bolting out of bed in the morning. She didn't have to wake him up. He was rushing down to the beach. And she realized, oh, for the first time, he's getting a taste of what I had my whole childhood. Just playing freely, finding other kids, making up their own games. So Lenore, when they went back to New York, Lenore believes that to be a healthy adult, you have to, throughout your childhood, had increasing levels of independence. So one day, Izzy said that he wanted to be taken to Bloomingdale's and left there by his mother and find his own way home through the subway. So she was nervous, but, you know, they sit down with a map, they plan it all out. And one day she took him to Bloomingdale's and left him there and, of course, felt a catch in her heart. And an hour later or whatever it was, he turns up at their door, like sweaty and excited and feeling really grown up. Lenore was a journalist at the time, so she wrote an article about this to encourage other parents. What happened to Lenore next was insanity. She was described on television as the worst mother in America. She was put on TV shows next to parents whose children had been murdered, as if it was equally likely that your child would be murdered and would be able to get the subway home from Bloomingdale's, when in fact your child is three times more likely to be hit by lightning than to be killed by a stranger. And she was just completely puzzled. So she began to study what has happened to childhood. How did this happen? And I think from what Lenore learned and a lot of other, a lot of scientists that I interviewed, you can really see that there are many factors in this transformation of childhood that have profoundly damaged children's ability to develop a sense of attention and focus. So to give you a few of the headlines, one is just very simple, exercise. Evidence is overwhelming. Children who run around, their brains grow better, they grow more neurons. It massively boosts children's attention. Only 73% of elementary schools have any form of recess now. We have dramatically cut back on the amount of time children run around. We are the only society ever that has thought you can make small children sit still for eight hours. It's insanity, right? That is not what children want to do, and they're right not to want to do it. The second is we've deprived children of the skills they gain in play. You know, what is Lenore learning when she's five years old and she's in that neighborhood with all those other kids? She's learning how to make things happen, right? How to persuade the other kids to play a game, how to cope with disappointment, and how to be brave, you know, all sorts of things. We're depriving our children of those skills. Supervised play doesn't do it, right? They've got to be playing freely. And it creates a huge amount of anxiety in children because they don't feel competent. They don't feel they can do anything. Anxiety obviously destroys your attention and they don't discover what they're good at because we're managing them all the time. You become good at paying attention when you discover something you care about. But if we're constantly managing them and directing them, they don't ever get to do that. So you can see, and this is 
I can talk about the school system, which is a whole other topic, which also has been redesigned to harm their attention, not deliberately, obviously, but in practice. You can see how, again, there's been this huge change in childhood. A lot of those changes involve factors that have been proven to harm attention. And as a result, we're getting loads of kids who are struggling to focus and pay attention. And it is wildly oversimplistic to look at those kids and say, all that's happening here is some innate biological problem, right? Some children, their genes make it somewhat harder for them to focus and pay attention. That is true. But as Professor Joel Nick, the leading expert on children's attention problems in the United States, said to me, your genes are turned on and off by the environment. Even the kids who have some greater genetic propensity will suffer much more in this environment than in, than in the environments we're talking about. Does that all make, does that make ring true to you, Alexis? A hundred percent, because that was me as a child. When I was younger, I went to Montessori school um, in my first mm. couple of years of life. And I thrived. I thrived, despite the fact, and my circumstances at home hadn't changed. My parents were still divorced. My dad was still an alcoholic. My mom was still smoking pot. My pe- parents weren't very present. But in Montessori school, I was free. I felt brilliant. I was able to learn because I was using hands-on. I remember learning about nouns and verbs and all these things by looking at a farm table and they would say, okay, put all of the things that are nouns in this sandbox, right? Instead of just writing it on a piece of paper, I was using my hands and my creativity. And then we moved into the city and I switched into the public school system. And within a year, I was having issues. By the time I was in third grade, I could not focus in school and I could not comprehend what I was learning to the point where I was having regular meetings with my teachers after school with my parents. And then what happened was a belief system developed that I was stupid, incompetent, that I wasn't a good listener, that I wasn't a good reader, that I would never be great at math. And those things stuck with me for the rest of my school career. And it wasn't until I grew up and found things that I loved that I could be creative at and explore. And and the reality is that I am very smart and that I'm brilliant and a great reader and a great writer and I absorb information perfectly fine. I just don't in the way that was laid out for me in the current school system. What you touched on there too is the effects of our environment on our brains. The biggest in the book that stuck out to me was the sleep portion. And then of course, our diet and pollution. Those things really are so clear to me. It makes perfect sense that we know food dyes affect children's abilities to focus and affect their behavior. Um, But it's so much more than just food dyes. Yeah. Just to say just super quickly, something what you said about Mm -hmm. schools, because the evidence is clear that you're absolutely right. So attention is tied to meaning. Adults and children, we all know it's much easier to pay attention to something that is meaningful to you, that matters to you, than something that isn't meaningful. If something isn't meaningful to you, your attention will just slip and slide off of it. And what we have, when you went to Montessori school, those schools are all about infusing learning with meaning. And what we developed is a school system that profoundly strips learning of meaning right? I remember the number of times in school where we would be made to learn something. And I would say, why are we learning this? And they would say, because you have to, because there'll be a test. I remember I carried on asking, I remember a teacher saying to me once, just shut up and learn, right? Which is the opposite of what learning actually is. And you can see this, the more education is stripped of meaning, the harder children find it to focus. When the No Child Left Behind Act was passed by George W. Bush in 2002, it massively increased the amount of time school school spelt on testing and homework and cut back on all the stuff about meaning, play and learning. What happened in, in the following four years, there was a 23% increase in attention diagnosed ADHD, right? So you can see how this, how this works. I go through in the book a lot of evidence that progressive schools 
produce children who can and want to pay attention. At the moment, our school system is producing kids who can't and don't want to pay attention because they're being fed a load of shit, frankly. Anyway, that's a so food. Speaking of being fed shit, the um, no, the food at our schools is awful. Yeah, a horror show, like a horror show. Um, and it is worth saying, like people in other countries literally cannot believe. Um, and there was a really interesting woman called Dr. Uma Devi, Uma Devi Naidu, who's a leading nutritional psychiatrist in Boston. You should you should talk to her, actually. You'd really like her. I'll give you an intro if you like. She talked about the link between when they cut the funding for children's school lunches, the companies moved in and just put huge numbers of vending machines in schools. And there was an increase, again, in diagnosed attention problems after that. So there's three, this is one of the ones that most surprised me. And to be honest with you, I know we've talked about this before, Alexis, thinking about it in relation to your producer, Brian, I'm very jealous. This is one I really struggle with. So the way we eat, uh, I struggle with it so much, there is literally a McDonald's bag in the corner of this room. The way we eat is fucking up our ability to focus and pay attention in three ways. The first is, as I learned about from the leading experts I interviewed. So the first is that the diet we have, the sort of Western diet, causes huge spikes in energy and huge crashes in energy. So let's say in the morning you have, you know, frosties and white bread to eat. What that does, is explained to me by um, Dale Pinnock, who's one of Britain's leading nutritionists. What that does is it causes a huge flood of glucose into your system, which releases energy really fast, which feels great for 20 minutes, then your energy absolutely crashes. You're sitting at your desk and you experience brain fog. And what we do is we're on a sort of roller coaster throughout the day of boosting our energy, crashing, boosting, crashing, which causes regular brain fog. The way Dale put it to me, if you picture a mini, you know, those little cars from the sixties in Britain, it's like we're putting rocket fuel into a mini, right? It'll go super fast for two minutes and then just putter to a halt, right? That's what we're doing with our brains. We're not giving it consistent fuel that could power our energy throughout the day, our mental energy. The second way is that our current diet deprives us of essential nutrients that are necessary for your brain to develop. It's a really interesting study in Denmark where they got a load of kids and they split them into two, sorry, it's the Netherlands, not Denmark, two groups, Dutch scientists, they split them into two groups. One group carried on eating in the normal way. And the other group cut out all the fast food and all the shit and just ate healthy food. And obviously the group that carried on eating the same way didn't change. The group that moved to the healthy food, um, 70% of them had an improvement in their ability to focus and pay attention. And the average improvement was a 50% improvement in their attention, which is staggering. The third way it fucks us up is the one that you mentioned, fucks up our attention, um, is that it's not just that our food is lacking the things we need. It contains substances that act on us like drugs. There was a study in Southampton in Britain where they split, they got 297 kids and they split them into two groups. And one group was given a drink that contained the kind of synthetic dyes that are contained in a lot of the food we eat, Twinkies, M&Ms, that kind of thing. And the second group was given a drink that did not contain those synthetic dyes. And then they were monitored. The kids who had the synthetic dyes were significantly more likely to run around, become manic, develop attention problems. So you can see these three ways in which what we eat is screwing with our brains. Yeah, I know that for me, I've I've openly talked about my issues with overeating and binge eating on this podcast. And what I notice for me is that, and it's interesting because sometimes I get pushback for this. And, and I will just say that anytime we talk about food stuff, people can get really triggered. I'm not saying that we need to go, get away with all of the stuff, that it all has to go away. What I'm saying is that the foundation of our diet shouldn't be foods that are infused with corn syrup and food dyes and a million different chemicals. I say that, and then I also say that because of how stressed out parents are, because of the socioeconomic status of most people in America, it is unrealistic for us to be eating the way that we need to. 
if that makes sense. Like ideally I would come home from work at four and have time to stop at the grocery store and make my family a home cooked meal with organic food from scratch with no food dyes and no added sugars and no junk. But the reality is that for most parents, that's not possible. And so we find ourselves going through the drive-thru or ordering DoorDash or whatever it might be most nights. And it is a struggle. And this is the, this is part of the, you go to a really important thing. This relates to what we were saying about, it's a bit like the social media thing we were saying before. We live in such an individualistic society that has been so deprived of understanding these wider environmental causes that when you point out an environmental problem, which is that our food supply profoundly changed in ways that has poisoned us. What people hear is you're criticizing me as an individual, right? And we want to say, no, I'm doing exactly the opposite of criticizing you as an individual. Exactly. This was done to all, all of, us, of us, right? This We were all fucked over. There's, you know, there's a really interesting analogy. We mentioned lead before. So when lead poisoning was happening, people were given lead paint. And that was the only paint people could buy pretty much. They painted their homes with lead and it was terribly harming their ability to focus and pay attention. The lead industry ran this propaganda campaign where they said this was particularly a problem for poor children for various reasons. They were more likely to have homes painted with a lot of lead. Um, The lead industry led this campaign where they said, oh, it's not that lead is poisoning people. It's that poor children, and they they disproportionately blamed black and Puerto Rican children. They said these children have a weird desire to eat lumps of lead, that lead is falling off the walls and these kids are eating it. They said they had a, a, a mental disorder called pica, which made them eat lumps of lead. They also said that it, the problem was that the parents of these children didn't dust their homes enough. So they said what everyone should do is just dust their homes more and you'll have less dust. So what they were doing is these mothers and children were being poisoned and then they were being told it was their own fault, that they weren't clean and the children had, the phrase they used was a perverted appetite for lead. Now, of course, this was insane bullshit, right? It wasn't that they didn't want to, it wasn't, you can't dust your house to get rid of lead, right? It makes absolutely no difference. You can't wash your hands more to get rid of lead. And of course, these children did not want to eat lead. The idea is absolutely idiotic, right? So you can see how people were given an individual solution to what was a collective problem, right? And they were made to feel guilty. In a similar way, a lot of people, when we, when we point out that the food supply system has been changed to poison us, we live in an environment where it is very expensive and very difficult to get hold of healthy food. And it is very easy and very cheap to get hold of food that fucks us up. And that food is designed to target our primitive pleasure centers. And from the moment we're born, we are trained to associate positive feeling with that food. More 18 month old children know what the McDonald's M means. They know their own last name. We are bombarded with machinery. And I feel it hundred percent, right? To make us crave food that will harm our brains and our bodies. Now that is the opposite of blaming the individual. We live in a machine that has made us feel this way. Now the solution is not to say, well, let's just accept all this harm. Let's just live with all the harm that causes. The solution is to say, we've got to fucking dismantle the machine. Now you can't do that as an isolated individual, but we can do that together, right? We can dismantle machinery that is poisoning us, right? We can get it so that instead of your taxes being used to subsidize the worst food, the food that harms you, the taxes can be used to subsidize healthy food, that helps you and helps your children to form an ability to focus and pay attention. Most countries, or a lot of countries, most democratic countries, ban the targeting of unhealthy food to children, right? That's just a low-hanging fruit. You shouldn't be allowed to bombard children with ads that make them crave food that will harm their brains and their bodies. (laughs) Not in America. (laughs) But that can be done, right? I mean, when, when there were proposals to ban smoking, to children, ads that targeted smoking. Mm-hmm. People should go Google Joe Camel, who was a kind of cartoon camel who smoked yeah. that was clearly targeted to make kids want to smoke. We don't allow that anymore, right? Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of changes we can make that will empower people. But one of the tragedies is people who are fucking us up deliberately try to frame this debate 
as either it's like, oh, there's individuals who just want to eat the way they want to eat, or there's these mean shamers. That's the debate they want us to have, right? That's bullshit, right? We are united in wanting to challenge them, right? That and change the system that is poisoning us, right? It's not us turning on each other, wagging our thing. And there are people who do this. You and I are not them, but there are people who go, you're really bad. You eat this bad, unhealthy food. Shame on you. You should be eating better. You're going, fuck you. You try doing a 60-hour week being exhausted, having no money, getting into a supermarket and finding you've got to, you know, so of course there is, there are people like that. And you and I, of course, disagree with those people, but that's not the debate. The debate is not shamers versus struggling individuals doing their best, right? I mean, there is such a debate and we're on the side of the struggling individuals, but that's not the debate we should be having. The debate we should be having is who poisoned us? Who filled our our minds with these cravings? How do we change this machinery so the next generation is not poisoned? So there's a whole array of forces that are destroying our focus, but it's really important for us to understand we can take on those forces. And that sounds like a big thing, and it is a big thing, but when I think about that, when I think about these two levels, there's individual responses where there's a lot we can do, and I talk about that in Stolen Bogus, and these big collective struggles. When that seems daunting, I think a lot about my grandmothers. So I'm 42 years old. My grandmothers were 42 in 1963. One of them was a working class Scottish woman living in like poor housing in Scotland. The other one was a Swiss woman living in a wooden hut on a mountain in Switzerland. In 1963, neither of my grandmothers were allowed to have bank accounts because they were married women. Um, Their husbands could legally rape them because that was the law in every country in the world. Their husbands could in practice beat the shit out of them because the police never intervened when a husband beat his wife. My Swiss grandmother wasn't even allowed to vote, right? Both my grandmothers left school when they were 13, even though the men in their family stayed on at school much longer because no one gave a shit about girls going to school, right? In the entire world, there was not a country, a company, or a police force that was run by women. So I think about 1963 and I think about what my grandmother's faced. And then I think about my niece, who's 17 now. My Swiss grandmother, who my niece never met, sadly. My Swiss grandmother loved to to draw and paint. And she was told when she was a girl, what what the fuck are you doing? Stop doing that. You're going to be a wife and mother. Shut up. Right? When my niece started to draw and she loved it, we said, oh, great. You can go to art school right now. I don't want to underestimate. We've still got a long way to go in terms of achieving equality and liberation for women. But my niece's life would be unrecognizable to my grandmother's lives when they were the age I am now. Now, what happened to make that change happen? It didn't happen because men just decided to give up power, right? That's not what happened. It happened because ordinary women banded together and they said, you know what? We're not going to take this shit anymore, right? And some sympathetic men joined them and they fought and they fought and they fought. So when we say the forces against us are powerful, and they are, Big tech is powerful. The food industry is powerful. Many of the forces I write about in Stolen Focus are powerful. I've got to tell you, they are not a tenth as powerful as men were in 1963. Men controlled literally every institution of power in the world, and they had for thousands of years, right? Women didn't say, oh, this is really hard. You know, we're never going to beat these people. God, they're so powerful. They started where they stood, and they started their fight. And we've got to be the same, just like there needed to be a feminist movement to reclaim women's control of their bodies and their lives. I think there needs to be an attention movement to reclaim control of our minds. And and that requires us to shift our perspective. We are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our minds and we can take them back from these fuckers who've taken them from us. Amen. I love that. (laughs) Stolen Focus will be available wherever books are sold January 25th here in the U.S. And I highly recommend this book, y'all. I ate this thing up. Like, I mean, talk about focus, right? I dove in and I think like the first, that was more pages than I read in a single day than I have in a long time. I was just like, yes, yes, yes. This book is so good. Um, You can follow along with Johan on 
his Instagram account, which is yohanhari101. That will be in the show notes. And thank you again for joining me. As always, it's such a pleasure. Oh. Adore you. And I meant to say, um, I meant to say, or oh, my publisher will tase me that anyone who wants any more information about where to get the audiobook, the ebook, or the physical book can go to stolenfocusbook.com. And you can also uh, listen there for free to loads of the interviews with, with all the people we've talked about. As always, such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye. Mwah. This week's affirmation is, I stay strong and confident. I know I will get through it. And so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, follow along with us, leave a review. It means so much to me. There are new episodes of Recovering From Reality every Monday, and you can follow me on social at Recovering From Reality or visit my website, recoveringfromreality.com. 